Hey, it's May 27th, Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Poison Center, and we're our last official Pat West Journal Club of his fellowship. (laughs) Yay! Graduating, going out of the nest into the wild world, and (laughs) we picked an appropriate springtime topic for that, talking about uh, Paraquat. Um, In case of you going out later this weekend and going to kill all the weeds in your yard, um, I've got that somewhere on my to-do list. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll start off with a okay, we'll start off with a, a recent new article, kind of go full circle from some old stuff and some other uh, things. Bring it back up to another recent article. Um, this one's just really a letter to the other, starting off. So, in the extent to which some t- patients go to get treated, or p- their doctors go to treat patients with paraquat exposure, and some of these issues we're going to talk about is, is a great uh, uh, case report that brings up all of the conundrums that we worry about. So, this was a 27-year-old man who attempted suicide, drank just a half a cup, four ounces of Gramoxin, leading um, product, Gramoxin Intion, which will become important later. He vomited several times. He had burning in his chest and his mouth. Um, he got admitted. They scoped him, found a small hiatal hernia, which has nothing to do with this, and a small triangular ulcer and some erythema, and they discharged him after 24 hours and do anything. But three days later, he comes back with hemoptysis, shortness of breath, and now they've sent him to a tertiary care hospital for a definitive treatment. He's got a fever of 102.3. His respiratory rate's 31. His pulse oximetry is 90% on room air. He's got ronchi. He's got tachypnea. His labs are pretty much normal except for his PO2 on room air, which is 56, PCO2 of 36. They sent off a serum paraquat level to be measured four days now after the ingestion, and it was still present at 008 mics per mil. Um, and to get a negative test, it would have to be less than 0.06, so it's still positive. Um, and then they treated him with all of the following. Methylpregnisolone, a gram IV every day for three days. Dexamethasone, six milligrams IV every six hours. Cyclophosphamide, 1.7 grams IV each day for two days. IV NAC for seven days. I, vitamin C, vitamin E, Continuous veno-veno-hemodialysis, uh, broken up by intermittent hemodialysis. He had a high-resolution uh, computed t- CT of his chest, which showed diffuse pulmonary fibrosis. And then just for good measure on day 12, they started serolimus therapy, which they continued for 15 days. And um, he also received cyclophosphamide. Um, the reason he was on serolimus because he got neutropenic on cyclophosphamide. His white count dropped to as low as 200 and eventually rebounded up to as high as 29,000. And then he had the usual iatrogenica of ICU, uh, DVT, he got heparin, he got Coumadin, got, and he survived after 39 days in the Woo-hoo! ICU. Was transferred to the psychiatric ward, and uh, as usual, no more contact after that. And so this brings up a lot, of, and they said maybe this new formulation may have led to this uh, survival. How they can even state that in this letter with these 16 different treatments he had, uh, some of which we'll talk about, some of which we'll just mention in passing, no one can really say. But be that as it may, a paraquat is a highly lethal substance. I wanted to talk about one of these sort of the original papers on it from The Lancet uh, back in August of 1979 by uh, Proudfoot um, out of Edinburgh. Um, and he basically um, looked at 79 patients with paraquat ingestion, and he got levels on them. And he tried to construct uh, an omogram, which is often quoted in the textbooks. Um, and we'll talk about somewhat here. There was 
he mentions the minimal lethal doses as little as 10 cc's of, or about one sachet of Paraquat, the way it was sold in England at the time. Um, and what he found, he got 70 patients who took either a Gramoxone or a Weedol, the two leading brands that were available in England, although it also comes in a product called I Like Path Clear. Um, just to give you an idea of what it does, it's, it's an herbicide. It basically kills everything it comes into contact with. Um, and he created a nomogram, which, although the dots on this look scattered, uh, he was able to create these nomograms that basically is sort of a, a sloping curvilinear graph of a log versus time plot. And at two hours post-ingestion, sorry, at four hours post-ingestion, a level of two milligrams per liter um, is sort of the cutoff between likely to survive or likely to uh, die and at six hours, it's 0. 0.6, and at 10 hours, it's 0. 0.3. But if you really look at the individual patient's graphs, they're kind of all over the place. But this is a graph we'll refer back to a couple of times and several uh, amendments that have been made to this from other case series. But the bottom line is paraquat is rapidly absorbed. It's rapidly excreted, and usually within four hours, you have your peak concentration. And with that level, you can <coughs> predict who will live and uh, who will die with this highly lethal ingestion. And he goes on <laughs> describing some of the things that you see with renal failure and then later pulmonary failure with this disease process and um, saying that perhaps the clinician may decide against treating a patient with a level above this line as it may be futile and no hope of success. So he's sort of advocating not doing anything at all except telling the patients that they've ingested a lethal amount. I'm sure that's not done anywhere, as we shall see from articles across the globe, that nobody, <coughs> nobody is quite ready to just do that and uh, throw in the, uh, the towel on these cases. So let's talk a little bit about what levels mean and how we expanded on this data point um, from a couple of different articles um, from different places where they do see a lot of uh, paraquat uh, poisoning. So let our EM resident, Andy, take over from here. I took a look at an article, Prediction of Outcome After Paraquat Poisoning by Measurement of the Plasma Paraquat Concentration, Quarterly Journal of Medicine, 2009. This is a review article combining all five of the published uh, nomograms for paraquat poisoning in the past. Um, the original one, as Dr. Horowitz stated, was the Proudfoot nomogram created in 1979 from the UK. This was later extended uh, by Sherman in 1987. Um, the Proudfoot nomogram only included up to 24 hours after ingestion, and so the Sherman uh, nomogram extends that beyond 24 hours. There are also uh, three other major nomograms created. Um, Hart et al. in the UK uh, used 219 patients and created a six-line um, grade grade gradation nomogram predicting anywhere from 10% to 90% uh, survival. Um, uh, SWADA et al. in Japan uh, on a population of 30 patients um, created a severity index for paraquat poisoning to try to predict who dies and uh, from what, either organ failure or pulmonary fibrosis. And the last major one is Jones et al. was a review of worldwide literature, 375 patients, and created a calculation of time and concentration to figure out survival. Um, all five of these nomograms have been used in the past, but none have been prospectively validated. This article attempts to 
use those uh, nomograms in a subset of Sri Lankan patients. 392 patients in this study uh, were eventually used. There was a total of 451 patients uh, in the study, and they were broken up by time uh, between 4 and 24 hours, and then uh, evaluating for longer with the uh, Sherman uh, nomogram as well. Um, just as in all of these other studies, the survival rate is uh, quite low. Um, 39% survival overall uh, with all of these patients. Um, and this was uh, combined with two different forms of paraquat. There was a, a less lethal form of paraquat released during this time, and inevitably there was no change in survival when comparing the two. Um, so four of the nograms were compared um, between uh, levels drawn between four hours and 24 hours. This was 265 patients. Um, and uh, the sensitivities and specificities were all fairly similar. When uh, looking at the specificity, um, ranged anywhere from 0.89 to 0.96, the sensitivity uh, being 0.57, ranging up to 0.79. Um, when looking at the nomograms that extend beyond 24 hours, um, there were similar findings of sensitivity and specificity. Uh, looking at all of these nomograms, they were all more specific than sensitive, better at predicting death than predicting survivors. Uh, unfortunately, none of them were particularly clinically useful. Um, the authors of this study speculate that at some point you could consider a patient having too high of a level and a low enough likelihood of survival that you could offer to the patient or their family um, de-escalation of therapy. But at this time, there's no clear indication of who is going to be an ultimate survivor. They did a secondary analysis of the data and pulled out which patients received lavage and which patients did not. And interestingly, the patients who received gastric lavage had a higher mortality. Um, the Estimated mortality and actual mortality of uh, non-lavage patients was in the 40% to 50% range. Uh, and in the lavage patients, the estimated mortality was anywhere from 38 to 59%, but actual mortality was anywhere from 66 to 71%. Um, authors speculate this could be due to aspiration, perforation, other technical concerns with lavage, but at this time, the actual effect is unknown. Um, the difficulty with the studies um, comparing the prior nomograms is there were no standardized treatments. And even in this population group of Sri Lankan patients, some received lavage, some didn't. Um, there were two different types of paraquat, and there was no rig rigorous protocol. So switch gears to uh, another article in Clinical Toxicology in 2008. There was uh, an, an article, Association Between Plasma Paraquat Level an outcome of paraquat poisoning in 375 paraquat poisoning patients. This was um, another fairly large study for paraquat poisoning, 375 patients, and they all underwent a rigorous protocol when paraquat poisoning was identified. Uh, patients uh, were lavaged if they were presented with within two hours of ingestion. Um, if within 12 hours of ingestion, uh, they all received 100 grams of Fuller's Earth. 
and if their urine was positive for Paraquat, um, they all received hemodialysis within 24 hours. This was 375 patients who presented from January 2005 to December 2006, <coughs> and similar to prior studies, there was approximately 29.3% survival. Um, this study uh, did not attempt to create a new nomogram or use the previous nomograms, but um, used a qualitative look at the, the data. And similar to the prior review, uh, they were unable to determine the survival of low paraquat poisoning or concentrations when the concentration of paraquat was measured in the blood and it was extremely high. Um, there was a high likelihood of death. Above a concentration of 3.44, all patients died in this study. Um, but there were deaths with very minimal paraquat poison concentrations as well. And so these, are, these authors came to a similar conclusion that you can say that above certain thresholds, there's a high likelihood of mortality, but the predictive value at lower concentrations is diminished. At this time, no clear protocol or guidelines can be drawn from any of these nomograms, um, and the, their usefulness uh, still remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, everyone keeps going back and I think trying to come up with, like, you know, can we create a baseline curve for survival, and then if we introduce <laughs> a new therapy, instead of doing a randomized trial, we can just say at our institution or our study site, it was better than the historical control. And by creating these line nomograms, either direct line or these multiple sort of isobars of 10%, 20%, up to 90% deaths, people are trying to use that to establish. The unfortunate part of the studies is the treatments, at least in the first study, were all over the map. Some got Fuller's Earth, some got Bentonite, some got Labars, some got hemodialysis, some got other things. So you really can't tell. Um, and the second group, had a uniform treatment protocol, which they got many of the things we talked about in that index case report. They got NAC, they got good thiome, they got vitamins, Lasix, deferoxamine. This other thing that's been tried, thiotic acid, which has been used for mushroom poisoning, but it's really not used very much anymore. It's all thrown in. They had about seven or eight different therapies in this pesticide poisoning institute in Korea, which a lot of the other studies have come out of. So it's hard to know what their baseline success rate is, although we'll talk a little bit more. The other thing is is they were actually able to kind of come up with a, how high your level was going to be based on how many mouthfuls you took. And one or two mouthfuls basically got you to a lethal level above that three um, level. To, uh, it's easy to get up to those very high plasma levels. So again, it re reasserts that this is a very lethal substance and really it's not really a one pill can kill kind of thing, but a one Swallow, a yeah, purposeful swallow can certainly lead to pretty severe, uh, if not fatal, outcome. Well, let's talk about um, one of the issues, which is does hemoperfusion, which is a therapy that's diminishingly used in the United States, but still used elsewhere, does that have an effect on um, not so much outcome, but on blood levels? I'll let Brian, our visiting student, talk about that. So I reviewed an article um, from Toxicology and Industrial Health in 2003 um, entitled Effect of Hemoperfusion on Plasma Paraquat Concentration in Vitro and in Vivo. Uh, it was done in Korea. Um, and 
the purpose of the study was to estimate the paraquat the clearance of uh, hemodialysis and also look at uh, hemoperfusion uh, and also uh, to observe the effect of hemoperfusion on paraquat concentration in the blood of patients with uh, acute paraquat poisoning. And the, basically the conclusion of the study was that um, hemoperfusion uh, appears to be an indispensable uh, treatment for patients with acute paraquat poisoning, though there's not uh, a clear uh, improvement in uh, mortality. And uh, there's, uh, uh, basically the study had uh, two parts. It had an in vitro uh, section and, and then they uh, had an in vivo evaluation of uh, hemoperfusion on, on the concentration of uh, paraquat in the, in the serum. Uh, for the in vitro part, uh, they took uh, 10 liters of saline and uh, 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 equal amount of uh, fresh pork blood, uh, put it into two containers, and then um, for each of those uh, samples of either pork blood or saline, they uh, ran he uh, hemoperfusion and also hemodialysis on, on each of those and measured uh, the levels of paraquat uh, uh, over a six-hour period of time, every half an hour, uh, and they uh, used membranes uh, for the, the hemodialysis and hemoparaquat that were uh, popularly used in Korea um, as kind of a, a way to, to measure something that would uh, um, be able to apply clinically. They found um, in, in vitro that uh, basically, the um, the paraquat the concentration um, was lower during hemoperfusion um, than during hemo than during hemodialysis, both in saline and uh, in in blood. They found that uh, the rate um, of the overall elimination was greater in hemoperfusion. Perfusion. And the other interesting thing they found in the in vitro part of the study was that um, even though they were putting equal amounts of paraquat into the uh, saline and the blood, there was, straight across the board there was less measurable uh, uh, paraquat uh, concentration in the blood um, when it would be taken into the serum. And the, the idea was that uh, the blood cells were um, absorbing some of the, the paraquat, which was leading to these lower uh, values. Then um, for the uh, in vivo part of the study, um, they had 150 patients with acute paraquat poisoning that were admitted to the Institute of Pesticide Poisoning in, in, uh, at the University Hospital in, in uh, a city in Korea. Um, basically, it's a specialized institute just for pesticide poisoning uh, in Korea. And uh, they looked at 150 patients that were admitted to this institute from January through December of 2002. And of those 150 patients, 105 were enrolled in the study. All of the patients had swallowed one to three mouthfuls of a 25% paraquat solution uh, in a self-harm gesture. Uh, they all had positive urine tests for, for paraquat, which is a diethionite uh, test. And... Uh, the subjects that were excluded had uh, unstable vital signs or were in poor physical condition that prevented uh, proper hemoperfusion. 
Um, they had a, a standardized uh, treatment guideline that they used on all patients. Um, uh, briefly, they they received gastric lavage if the subject arrived within two hours of, of ingestion. Um, if they were arrived within 12 hours of ingestion, they uh, received 100 grams of Fuller's Earth, which is uh, a clay um, dissolved in mannitol to deactivate the, uh, the paraquat. And uh, emergency hemoperfusion was performed for four hours on all patients. Uh, they also received antioxidant treatment uh, with glutathione and vitamin C every 24 hours for seven days. And the outcome uh, on hospital day seven, uh, they did a CT of the lung. Uh, and if that was normal, along with normal PA, uh, O2, and serum creatinine, and uh, LFTs, then uh, it was considered to be a treatment. Uh, the treatment was considered to be successful, and the subject was uh, designated as a survivor. Um, that was based on their experience uh, of more than a thousand patients that, that they were all normal at seven days that they would, they would survive the poison. So they, they did a statistical analysis to, uh, on the comparison between the survivors and non-survivors. And um, the bottom line was that the non-survivors ingested a greater amount of paraquat. That was the, the number one indicator. Along with that, the paraquat concentration before hemoperfusion was higher in the non-survivors. And they also, on a four, or one plus to four plus uh, rating scale of the urine, uh, they had a stronger urine test. Um, the survivor group uh, showed a higher reduction rate of paraquat concentration in the plasma than the non-survivor group. So they, they measured the... Um, the person came in with the, the poisoning, they measured their paraquat level before hemoperfusion hemo and then after, and the survivor group had a greater uh, relative reduction in their uh, paraquat concentration. Um, there was no difference, however, in time elapsed between paraquat ingestion and the arrival to the emergency room, or time elapsed from uh, ingestion and the initiation of uh, hemoperfusion between the survivors and non-survivor groups. Um, so the, in the discussion part of the article that they talked about, it's not clear um, why the clinical effect of uh, hemodialysis uh, treatment is below theoretical expectations, but uh, at the, uh, their conclusion was that uh, hemodialysis should be reserved for people that uh, have uh, kidney failure, not necessarily um, just uh, standard for paraquat poisoning. Um, because the paraquat poisoning is associated with such a high mortality, it is uh, low proportion of survivors, and, and it's often difficult to detect actual clinical effect of hemoperfusion, um, and and it's difficult to, um, uh, although the, con the current uh, consensus is that hemoperfusion doesn't increase uh, survival, which is the most important uh, measuring uh, outcome, uh, it still is uh, difficult to interpret that data because uh, it's just one part of an overall treatment uh, that they're providing, including you know giving antioxidants, uh, the time elapsed, and, and the amount that the subjects are getting. Um, you know, it's not ethical to have uh, a prospective study where you give some patients uh, hemoperfusion and compare those to those to patients that you don't give hemoperfusion to, um, and so uh, the. the the main outcome of the rate of reduction in paraquat concentration uh, was 
of being higher in the survivors versus non-survivors. Um, some reasons that they came up for that, that being possible is that um, it's possible that the renal, renal function is worse in the non-survivors group than the survivor group because of the higher ingested amounts of paraquat. Um, another possibility is that having a larger amount of uh, paraquat uh, in the body may alter the pharmacokinetics uh, and or the pharma, uh, pharmacodynamics, which um, would in turn alter the plasma concentration. And uh, it's also possible that some unknown substance is being released during tissue injury that may saturate the charcoal and the dialyzer and, and um, then that would in turn reduce the, the paraquat clearance. So, um, so in, in conclusion, that um, hemoperfusion is more effective than hemodialysis, uh, but the, di the dialyzer, the charcoal container, has to be changed every three hours. Um, and adequate uh, hemoperfusion appears to be an indispensable treatment for patients with acute paraquat uh, poisoning. Yeah, I think they, they, they let him get away with saying that final uh, sentence in their paper, uh, which probably is way overstatement of what they were able to prove. So they said it's an indispensable treatment, and people have debated whether or not it is. I, you know, I think what they showed is you can take a saline and extract paraquat from it. You can take pork blood and extract paraquat from it with both hemoperfusion and hemodialysis, uh, with the hemoperfusion always performing better than hemodialysis, but not that much better. And in 100 of their patients, uh, in real life, the levels drop quickly with hemoperfusion for the first three hours, but then the cartridge gets uh, clogged up or saturated with uh, uh, the product and it can't work as efficiently, and it tends to uh, fall off, so you need to change the cartridge every few hours. But what they fail to show is, and they didn't really randomize folks to one or the other, um, is that if you had a randomized trial with the rest of their protocol, half getting hemoperfusion, half not getting hemoperfusion, or even half getting hemodialysis, was there a change in the, the uh, outcome? There may not have been. And you'd also probably have to stratify it based on time to treatment because many of the prior studies have felt that hemoperfusion probably only works if you get it during the peak level within the first two to four hours, which is nearly impossible. Certainly in the United States, it is impossible to get anybody hemoperfused within two hours of presentation, and, and the number of hemoperfusions in this country has fallen off to a trivial amount. But in this institute for pesticide poisoning, which is this central place where everyone gets sent with paraquat poisoning <coughs> in South Korea, um, they, they see a lot of them, and they've written a lot of papers on the subject. They firmly believe that hemoperfusion is part of the protocol, and that, I guess ethically they can't consider not offering it to somebody who, with this very lethal um, ingestion. So, um, you know, again, I think the the data on that is still out, and I'm not sure anyone's going to have a big enough trial where you're going to see three, four hundred patients in a year like they do, um, and be able to randomize it appropriately to see if perfusion or not really makes a difference, or time to start perfusion makes a difference. So that brings us to the next thing we may be able to do uh, for these folks as well. If we can't get them decontaminated with full reserve the bentonite early on, where we can't perfuse them in the first couple of hours, what about some of these immunosuppressive therapies to prevent sort of that middle group, not the group that dies right away, but the group that develops this progressive pulmonary fibrosis and dies over the next five to seven days? So talk about a couple of articles involving uh, meta-analyses of the immunosuppressive papers 
and some of those in detail is our, our own Pat West. Okay, so we're going to go through a couple different articles here talking about immunosuppressive therapy for paraquat-induced uh, lung fibrosis. The first article is actually a uh, meta-analysis, which we all love, from the Quarterly Journal of Medicine from 2003 by Edelston et al., Prospects for treatment of paraquat-induced lung fibrosis with immunosuppressive drugs and the need for better predictive outcome, a systematic review, alluding to something later that we'll go into. Um, so the idea behind this, is, is, it's kind of interesting. Basically, they, they kind of took some of the stuff that you were just talking about with the hemoperfusion and said that, you know, there's suggestion that, and there was another couple studies they cited in here, that hemoperfusion actually seemed to be successful and that other groups were suggesting increased survival with over 10 hours of hemoperfusion. The caveat to that was, yes, that, you know, high doses of paraquat, you could save their lives by giving a hemoperfusion, but then they have increased rates of lung fibrosis and death. So it didn't change death, but it it changed the death from a very short time period from the organ failure death to a longer period of time with the pulmonary fibrosis death. So you can stop the organ failure. So how are you going to save the the remainder of the people that you've now put into horrible pulmonary fibrosis? Well, what they did is they looked at the mechanism of the pulmonary fibrosis, and they said basically in a moderate to large ingestion, it doesn't kill you. Uh, The paraquat seems to accumulate primarily in the lung. Then you get free radical generation, uh, and then triggering neutrophil-mediated inflammatory response, and then that starts the irreversible fibrotic process. So the idea being that maybe if we stop the function of our own immune system, since this seems to be immune-mediated, that then we can, uh, you know, we refuse the people, then we stop the neutrophils from functioning, and maybe they can actually come out of these uh, overdoses actually in good shape. Um, So what they did was they did uh, meta-analysis and found a whole bunch of different studies, and uh, there are issues with each one of the studies. Um, But the main couple, they ended up finding 10 different studies. Uh, There was one randomized controlled trial. There were uh, about six or seven studies that uh, used historical controls. And then there were a couple of studies that were one to four patients kind of in that range and more case series type of things. So the big randomized controlled trial was uh, in 1999, Lynn et al. basically did a, a, a randomized controlled trial of pulse, uh, solumedrol, and cyclophosphamide and uh, paraquat poisoning. And basically their, uh, in, and their goal was to evaluate this in moderate, severely poisoned patients. So they were, ran- so they were randomized to therapy, and they showed uh, they had to have 28 in one group and 22 in another group. Uh, the survival that they came up with was uh, 43% in the non in the control group and 72% in the uh, treatment group. So pretty you know, 30% change in mortality. That's or actually it was yeah 30% change in mortality. So uh, the and then the the authors of the uh, meta-analysis point out that they did that, but at the same time they had some odd exclusions in there, and they didn't really document exactly how they randomized and what their um, analysis was. So they basically they excluded all patients who died within seven days as having a fulminant rather than a moderate to severe poisoning. Um, and really they said that you can really only do that retrospectively rather than prospectively. And um, they also said that uh, um, 
about 50% of the total number of patients ended up dying within seven days and thus were excluded from their analysis. So if they went, they went back and analyzed on an intention-to-treat basis and took their data, and so they added about 25 patients back into each group, and they showed a change in mortality going from uh, 32 to 18%, which works out to be 14%, uh, percent, if my math is correct, which is not, in the, with the numbers they have, is not less than uh, 0.05, it's like 0.095. <sighs> Uh, p-value. So um, basically they said that there, this was not powered highly enough for them to figure out whether whether there was truly a response and uh, there were some other weird quirky things that they did with recruitment and not documenting exactly how they did. So basically that the, the uh, you'll hear this repeatedly in this, uh, the authors concluded both, concluded both this paper and a subsequent letter with statement that basically further double-blind controlled studies are required to determine efficacy of pulse therapy. A um, couple of the non-randomized studies uh, it, where they were um, com- uh, the historical controls were used and the kind of issues with historical controls um, as always, but um, basically they took 20 patients that they treated with pulse therapy and then compared it to their previous, uh, so Addo et al. in 1984, uh, compared their pre- previous survival rate of 20% to 20 patients who got pulse therapy, and their survival was 75%. Seems pretty good. Uh, same author subsequently uh, reported that another they added another 52 patients into their data to get 72 patients in all, uh, and they reported a survival rate of 72% compared to 32%. Um, and so, again, more criticisms. Uh, so... Let's see, a third study. Basically, they, they had uh, 33 patients, and they showed really no difference in the uh, two groups with uh, mortality. And it kind of continues on. Uh, another, another study by Lynn and all in 1996 showed 87 patients that uh, there were no fulminant patients in there. Again, no fulminant patients included in their study. Uh, mortality was... Uh, uh, 41% versus 18%. So really, it seems like there's a pretty significant change in mortality in most of these studies. And the other studies kind of tend to show the same general thing. There was one that was a little bit different. <laughs> okay, sorry. Pager's going crazy right now uh, in the poison center. Uh, so generally, all of these seem to show an increased survival. Um, the, the increased survival didn't seem to be uh, occurring with the uh, sickest patients, but did seem to be uh, pretty reproducible in the moderately to severely poisoned patients. Um, and there were a couple case reports that showed improvement. One of them actually required two uh, pulse therapies of cyclophosphamide and steroids, but the patient actually was really sick with a... PAO2 of uh, 66 millimeters of mercury on presentation and uh, renal failure, dialysis. Uh, it, it sounds like very, very ill, and then walked out of the hospital 40 days later, which sounds like it's fairly... It, I've never seen Paraquat before, but that sounds fairly unusual for, um, for these uh, patients. Um, anyway, so basically their take-home from, uh, from all of these studies... Uh, they also wanted to look at, you know, is there a good study to uh, assess for 
prognosis, and we kind of already touched on this, and the answer is essentially no. But, so we're going to skip through that. Uh, but the their, their take-home from all of these um, studies was that they weren't very well done, they kind of missed some methodology, things were kind of missed here and there, and while it looks like all of them do, all but one really seem to kind of point towards you know, that this pulse therapy actually does seem to work, that um, really their kind of final conclusions are that we believe a randomized controlled trial sufficiently, sufficiently large is uh, required to show a difference in all-cause mortality, um, and they kind of estimate that it's going to be 295 patients. And they really kind of harp on, there's apparently a bedside urine test where the urine dithionite test where... Um, where you can actually add, you add something to the urine and it either turns light, either cl stays clear if there's no paraquat or it turns really dark blue if there's lots of paraquat. So they were hoping that that bedside test could actually be predictive or show people to put into the study. So, so basically they, they feel like another study needs to be done. And despite, you know, I was kind of reading through this, I was like, wow, that really, it actually seems like most of the data is pointing to this pulse therapy seems to be pretty good. I'm not sure I'd want to be randomized into that randomized controlled trial if I got the controlled arm. Then they go into the conflict of interest if you read through the part of the article that not everybody reads through. Oh, three of the authors are now planning a randomized controlled trial in Sri Lanka funded by Surgenta who makes Paraquat that will address the benefit of immunosuppression treating Paraquat. So, um, yeah, so, I don't know. We can, you can discuss the ethics of uh, writing a paper to uh, discuss why your paper, sh your randomized controlled trial is okay. Well, one of the problems is, you know, um, well, obviously one of them is an employer of Syngenta. It's impossible to do any of these studies without Syngenta since they are like the only lab that runs these levels. There's three specific lab HPLCs and other fluoroacid methods they use. And almost every one of these trials you read through these and other ones that did not include in today's packet. Syngenta is like the only place that can run these levels. So you pretty much, they, in a way, know what's going on in the research with their product. Um, it's a kind of a unique industry and uh, researcher relationship. Um, but you're right, it's hard to completely separate the conflict of interest there. When people actually work for the company, um, that it's coming up with conclusions. Their, their conclusion is somewhat justifying the fact that they already have a trial going on, which to me, you know, just in reading through the data and reading their summary of the data, I, I, I was trying, I kind of got to the end of the paper, I was wondering how they could really justify doing a randomized controlled trial on something that seems to, you know, probably not cause a ton of harm, it seems to, on most studies, be saving lives. So. Well, there seems to be no shortage of meta-analyses in this area. Yes. So we're going to talk about another meta-analysis that was uh, done by uh, Agarwal et al., Singapore Medical Journal in 2007, uh, Immunosuppressive Therapy and Lung Injury Due to Paraquat Poisoning, a meta-analysis. So um, in the interval, intervening uh, four years in between these two articles, uh, one other study came out that I, I went ahead and pulled because um, really, the, uh, <laughs> that's the only thing that was different between the two uh, meta-analyses and the data that they found. They kind, of some, they kind of included or excluded maybe a couple more of the case report and one to two patients 
uh, deals. But basically, there, another study came out by Lynn et al. in 2006 from Critical Care Medicine. Um, it repeated pulse uh, that uh, methylprednisolone and cyclophosphamide with continuous dexamethasone therapy for patients with severe paraquat poisoning that I'll go over in just a second. But the interesting uh, difference between the two groups that are doing the uh, um, meta-analysis... Uh, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the article first. So we'll go through the other article first, and then we'll get to the, discuss, the uh, conclusions that the group made based on the addition of these patients. So basically, uh, same question. So Lynn and uh, colleagues, basically what they did was they, anyone that came in with a paraquat poisoning, they gave them activated charcoal, hemoperfusion, cyclophosphamide, dexamethasone, and basically continued to pulse them until their PaO2 on uh, 100% oxygen was uh, basically over 80 millimeters of mercury. Um, and they just basically continued, continued pulsing them. Um, their results were, they did not have a ton of patients. They ended up looking at 96 patients with paraquat poisoning, poisoning over five years and excluded, uh, basically they excluded these really sick patients. So they looked at the predictive mortalities and anyone with a predicted mortality of over 90% or less than 50%, they excluded. Uh, they got rid of patients without plasma paraquat levels. That left 23 patients with a mortality in the range that they were looking for. They randomized them in a two-to-one ratio of 16 patients to the treatment pulse therapy group and seven to the non-pulse therapy group. In the uh, basically 11 patients out of the 16 survived in the pulse therapy group, and one out of the seven survived in the non-pulse therapy group. So they added a total of 23 patients to the uh, prior meta-analysis, and basically they, their conclusion was this probably works. So if you go back to the meta-analysis uh, from the Singapore Medical Journal, that, that change in 23 patients moved from uh, more, more work needs to be done, we're not sure we believe it, to the results of our systematic review suggests that immunosuppressive therapy with glucocorticoids and cyclophosphamide is efficacious in the management of lung injury in patients with severe paraquat poisoning and is likely to do, decrease the mortality in this group of patients. And then they said, you know, there are limit, their limitations because there's no randomized controlled trial, but it seems like it probably works. So I think it's kind of an interesting uh, difference in the meta-analysis. And it seems to me, like in take home, that after all of these studies, that it seems likely that, the, uh, that some type of immunosuppressive therapy actually is really helpful for treatment of fibrotic lung disease and paracopoisoning. Yeah, so uh, another unanswered question. So it doesn't seem that hemoperfusion can save them unless it's done instantaneously. It's questionable whether immunosuppressive therapy with one or both of these agents works. So maybe the real answer is product substitution. We'll talk about two papers that address that. One is, is there a different formulation that effectively kills your weeds without killing you? Um, or is there a better way to package Paraquat to make it safe? So addressing the first of those questions is, again, Ryan talking about Diquat, which is available in this country. You can go down to the garden store and buy that without a license. Paraquat is restricted in this country to uh, very, very few licensed applicators. So is Paraquat therefore safer? Uh, so this uh, article is called Diquat Intoxication, a report of two cases and review of the literature from the American Journal of Medicine in uh, June 1981 by uh, Van Holder et al. And 
basically, they reviewed the fact that animal experiments have suggested that diquat is le less toxic than the more widely used paraquat. Um, they're both uh, by bipyridilium, bipyridilium uh, compounds, which uh, um, act their toxicity in uh, plants as well as uh, uh, humans and mammals is uh, the same. And the liberation of hydrox or uh, hydrogen peroxide through um, uh, basically uh, free radicals, kind of an oxygen toxicity uh, mechanism, um, and uh, diquat is uh, less uh, frequently used than paraquat, um, and they think that because of the animal studies and it's less uh, um, frequently used, that it's gotten little attention as far as the toxicity, and it's just assumed to be safer. Um, but uh, there was uh, a few, there were nine cases in the case reports in the, in the literature um, of diquat uh, poisoning and uh, four of those nine died, uh, including the authors uh, um, here in this article present two more uh, case reports in which the patients died. And, and the interesting uh, point besides the fact that uh, diquat uh, seems to be uh, not as safe as one as uh, previously thought was that uh, it has a, a very different clinical course uh, compared to paraquat. Uh, so the first case report is a 16-year-old girl uh, she ingested approximately 50 milliliters of Reglone, which is uh, a standard diquat uh, solution in a suicide attempt. Almost immediately, she had uh, abdominal cramps, vomiting, and diarrhea, was admitted to a local hospital. But because of her satisfactory uh, condition, no specific treatment besides gastric lavage was given. Uh, a few hours later, however, um, she had progressive oliguria and a coma developed. Um, she had a creatinine of 3.4, BUN of 58, increased LFTs. Uh, 18, 18 hours after the uh, intake of Reglone, uh, the patient was transferred to the ICU in the university hospital. During the transfer, uh, acute circulatory shock developed, and on admission to the emergency ward, uh, she was uh, deeply comatose, uh, bilaterally fixed uh, meiotic pupils, and uh, reflexes were absent. Um, they noted that her abdomen was quite distended and no uh, uh, peristalsis was noted. Um, she uh, was uh, hypotensive, had sinus tachycardia up to 160 beats per minute, um, central venous pressure of less than zero, um, and uh, experienced cardiorespiratory arrest. And um, she died 24 uh, hours after the intake of the poison. Um, they uh, took a serum level of the um, the diquat, which was 4.5 parts per million, uh, was measured, and they didn't do an autopsy on her. Um, uh, the second case was a 60-year-old woman. Um, she ingested uh, 20 mil milliliters of Reglone, uh, which is the diquat solution. She was admitted to the local hospital, uh, didn't receive any therapy because she was in satisfactory clinical condition, um, but she had uh, she later developed a progressive renal failure about 50 hours after admission and required her transfer uh, to the university hospital. When she got to the emergency ward there, um, she looked pretty good. She had the decreased ventilation over the, the base of the right lung and some abdominal hypoperistalsis. Um, but uh, later she was found to be uh, aneuric and uh, she had a serum creatinine of 6.7, BUN uh, of 150 and uh, increased LFTs as well. And uh, she, 
uh, imaging showed a diffuse uh, infiltration in the lower lobe of the right lung. Um, so she got uh, gastric lavage, uh, Fuller's earth um, was uh, was instilled in the stomach, uh, and she got hemodialysis in association with hemoperfusion. Um, during and after the hemoperfusion, uh, she became uh, progressively comatose, and she experienced respiratory arrest, was put on a vent, uh, and she had severe gastrointestinal paralysis, which uh, resulted in intraluminal uh, sequestration of large quantities of the Fuller's earth that they had, uh, had given her. Um, uh, her uh, ventil uh, ventilation to perfusion ratio was uh, disturbed. Um, she was uh, basically progressively uh, went into a deep coma and died of uh, uncorrectable ventricular arrhythmia five days after the ingestion of the diquat. Um, she had a, a serum level of 0 0.4 parts per million um, uh, at postpartum examination. Uh, there were low levels of diquat in uh, tissue of several organs, including the eye, liver, kidney, and muscle. Um, they noted that those small and large intestines were distended and contained green-colored fluid, and she had severe tubular, tubular necrosis uh, in the kidneys. Um, in the lungs, that, uh, she had edema and congestion and bronchopneumonia, but no pulmonary fibrosis or obvious alterations of the liver and heart were observed, which are things that you um, would see with the uh, paraquat uh, poisoning um, and also macroscopic examination of the brain revealed a large zone of uh, hemorrhagic necrosis uh, involving the dorsal part of the pons. And um, so they reviewed the literature um, and uh, noted that the, of the 11 patients, um, including the two that they um, present here, um, gastrointestinal complaints are, are uh, frequent, including ulcerations of oral, oral mucosa and diarrhea. And in their patients, there was the, the paralysis of the GI tract. Um, they also found uh, uh, renal failure, uh, which seemed to be uh, more, uh, the degree was more severe than uh, paraquat poisoning. And coma was present in all the fatal cases, um, often before any uh, degree of circulatory shock. Um, so they, uh, they looked at... Uh, this kind of clinical picture of the, of the GI um, symptoms and in, and the, the sequestration of the uh, gastrointestinal fluid was, uh, um, they felt probably explains the um, acute hypovolemic shock of the first patient during transfer. Um, and that they also found that the same uh, sequestration um, uh, at <coughs> autopsy on the second patient. Um, the the renal findings um, seem to be probably a combination of the hemodynamic alterations uh, with the hypovolemia, vascular collapse, and decreased cardiac output. Um, but there were some cases where renal failure de developed despite adequate hemodynamic status, so they think there may be a, a direct toxic effect, uh, possibly. Um, the, neuro, the neurologic effects of the diquat um, felt... Uh, were probably a result of uh, alterations of the brain vasculature together with lysis of the surrounding tissue. And uh, that, that brought up the point that uh, administration of heparin to these patients at the time of hemodialysis or hemoperfusion um, kind of puts you in a catch-22. Um, the, uh, then the lung findings uh, were uh, different than paraquat in that there was no pulmonary fibrosis uh, found in any of the cases. Um, whereas uh, that, that was something common in paraquat. The pulmonary lesions that they did find were, were probably not due to a primary effect. So, the, so the, you know, finding 
this, uh, the, the clinical differences between the diquad and the paraquad. First of all, it, it appears that diquad is not um, particularly benign, after all, and um, the treatment um, is pretty much, is considered to be the same between the two uh, uh, poisonings, but um, given the the uh, GI uh, fluid sequestration, um, using activated charcoal, um, it needs to be um, done with caution because it could uh, uh, lead to um, perforation or um, um, sequestration uh, as occurred in the, in the first patient that they presented. Um, also, uh, the uh, risk of cerebral hemorrhage um, and anticoagulant should be administrated with uh, greater caution and, and minimize the heparin dose, although it usually ends up to uh, be part of the treatment when you use uh, uh, hemoperfusion and hemodialysis. And then the, the third point that they, they found is in the second case that they presented where the patient was uh, basically uh, uh, symptom-free, um, relatively symptom-free for 24 to 48 hours in a, a lower ingest amount ingested kind of uh, um, doesn't mean that there's not damage going on or the treatment should be, uh, um, should not be delayed. They should uh, um, get treatment as soon as possible after the, the patient ingests even a small amount because of, you know, it could be delayed uh, manifestation of the symptoms. All right. So, yeah, so the important, you know, things about diquat is it's speculated that there, with paraquat, there's a polyamine transporter that transports it into the lung parenchyma and damages type 1 and type 2 pneumatocytes. And probably because of the size of the molecule with uh, diquat, um, it can't be transported by that polyamine transporter into the lungs. And therefore, you don't get this terrible pulmonary fibrotic uh, event that occurs and you don't get death. But it seems to form this giant sink of, of absorptive capacity in the gut. And you draw, you draw all this water into the gut and it becomes really volume depleted. I mean, the first patient's you know, CVP was zero. And at autopsy, they found this other patient's you know, GI tract just bloated with this green fluid and although she also did receive one of the clay absorbents. So I'm not sure you wouldn't necessarily give one of these absorbents, although studies have been done, we, we didn't review them, but Fuller's Earth, Abet, Tonight are probably equal to activated charcoal, and in other studies even k has been used as well. So any of these varieties of absorbents seem to work for these. Um, but what you do see is probably a direct nephrotoxic effect from diquat enough, in fact, that many of these earlier studies in the 60s and 70s, patients died, whether or not with more aggressive ICU care we do today, whether these patients are more likely to survive if they don't die of this pulmonary death, um, you know, is yet to, to be seen, and no one's really published a, a real update since this study almost 20-plus years ago. But diquat was speculated to be safer, but in a suicidal attempt, it really doesn't take much to kill you, but the mechanism of death is, is different. So that brings us what to do today, and this one I think is one of the uh, novel papers. Uh, can we actually change the formulation of paraquat itself so that it kills plants but doesn't kill us? And to review that uh, is Rob Hendrickson. Uh, it's Rob Hendrickson. I'm reviewing a paper entitled Improvement in Survival After Paraquat Injection Following Introduction of a New Formulation in Sri Lanka. 
uh, lead author is Martin Wilkes, and it's published in the Public Library of Science Medicine, or PLOS Medicine. Let's review for a second some of the things um, that we've been talking about. Clearly, pesticides, self-ingestion of pesticides is a huge public health problem, particularly in developing countries, more than developed countries. And um, pesticide ingestion accounts for about a third of all suicides worldwide, which is certainly not the case in the developed world. Um, paraquat seems to have a sort of biphasic toxicity based on the amount that you ingest. If you ingest a large amount of a concentrated formulation, you get very rapid cardiogenic shock and multi-organ failure. And smaller amounts or lower concentrations, um, paraquat is actively taken up in the pulmonary epithelial cells and get fibrosis and, and death that seems <clears throat> to be days later. Um, while intentional ingestion of paraquats, uh, paraquat accounts for the vast majority of the fatalities, uh, there have been uh, there has been a huge problem with unintentional ingestions. Um, and in fact, um, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a formulation change um, for paraquat that is felt to have decreased the amount of unintentional ingestions. What they did was they changed the color. Um, from the natural paraquat color is sort of a dark brown cola appearing uh, color and it is uh, just like other um, household substances and, and substances like this sometimes people would put them into a soda bottle or put them into a, a glass and it would look like soda and someone would drink it so they changed the color to a blue a very distinct blue color they added a stenching agent so that it smelled terrible and they added an emetic to cause vomiting and it's believed that this may have been a major contributor to decreasing unintentional ingestion, but um, there are still questions about whether this had any effect on uh, the survival rate of someone who was intentionally ingesting it. <clears throat> so um, they uh, introduced Gramoxone Intion, which is a, um, a specifically developed formulation to decrease toxicity by reducing the amount of paraquat that is absorbed in the GI tract. And they added three things. One, a natural alginate that immediately gels when entering the low pH environment of the stomach. And alginates are very interesting. Um, they are uh, usually the sodium salt of alginic acid or some salt, calcium salt, or um, some salt of alginic acid. And they're used in a whole bunch of different things. Um, and they're used in pharmaceuticals to treat heartburn and GERD. They're also used to create satiety for in obesity. So um, you take an alginate and then it expands in your stomach. You don't feel quite so hungry. Um, it also has a couple of industrial uses, screen printing, uh, making dental impressions. And then the thing that I was uh, most amused at is um, they use it to, uh, instead of having to cut pimentos for olives, <laughs> they now grind up the pimento, add some alginate, and then stuff the little bead inside the olive and it expands to uh, fill the olive, <laughs> which is <laughs> much easier than having to do it by hand. So, um, but alginates have actually been studied in rabbits and they actually decrease paraquat area under the curve. If you give an alginate with paraquat, decrease the area under, under the curve of paraquat by about 60%. So there was some data in animals at least uh, to back up this thought. They also add, so they added an alginate, they added another emetic, and they added an osmotic purgative, magnesium sulfate. 
so what the uh, purpose of the study is to observe, do an observational study to compare the three-month survival of patients admitted to the hospital following paracord ingestion before and after this new formulation that they introduced. So nine large hospitals in Sri Lanka. Um, patients were recruited if they reported an ingestion of paracord or if the pesticide was unknown, they said they ingested a pesticide and they had typical findings and the example they gave are mouth lesions or blue discoloration of the mouth. So this perspective is about 25 months, December 03 to January 06. And right in the middle there, October 2004, they introduced this new Intion formulation. The company uh, actively withdrew all of the old formulation and replaced it with this new formulation. So right around October 1st, 2004, about halfway through the study, um, there should have been a significant switch. So they also added, uh, this is interesting, uh, a tracer compound, which was 500 parts per million of diquat. Uh, to there so that they could detect the new formulation if uh, after the ingestion. So upon admission, they collected demographic data, details of the ingestion, ingestion volume, and then they did plasma and urine samples. Um, and if the patient was discharged prior to the um, uh, discharge from the hospital, then the study doctors actually visited the patient at home a minimum of three months after the initial exposure, and that was to ascertain whether they survived or they did not survive. So they also, um, to find out if there was a change in paraquat um, ingestion rate over this time, they uh, contacted 147 hospitals and care units uh, and did a structured questionnaire to ask them about uh, increase, decrease, or the same amount of uh, paraquat ingestion. So a couple of case definitions. First was confirmed cases of intion ingestion. This was uh, blood or urine confirmed it. Probable cases when they didn't have confirmation, but they brought in a bottle that said Intion on it. Seems pretty reasonable. And then the last one was um, the possible Intion cases, and this is a little bit more questionable. Um, they decided that between October 1st, 2004, and the time period when the, each hospital had two Intion ingestions in a row, that was called the washout period. Once they had two intion ingestions in a row, every ingestion after that was considered an intion ingestion um, or a possible intion ingestion. Um, so uh, there may be some issues with those cases um, because they had no confirmation and um, they're sort of relying on the fact that uh, there's nothing lying around for more than a few months. <clears throat> so they did a power calculation. They decided they needed 210 cases they collected 210 cases, but then they had to eliminate a bunch of them because they were counted twice because they were transferred from, from one hospital to another and a few other reasons why um, they didn't meet the study entrance criteria. So they had a total number of Intion cases that was below one, 210, but what they did then was they took the confirmed and probable, which are reasonable, and they added on the possibles to get their number over 210, um, which... We're not really sure, maybe, maybe an issue. So they uh, collected 774 patients over the whole study period, 297 confirmed cases of standard formulation, 289 confirmed probable and possible causes of intion, cases of intion, I should say. <clears throat> Two groups were similar, demographics and ingestion variables. Um, the vast majority of patients ingested paraquat deliberately, so 94% ingested uh, paraquat deliberately. The uh, 
it, it, one of the interesting things that they don't they chose not to comment on at all was that the standard formulation cases a fairly uh, larger number of patients ingested greater than 100 milliliters, 28.5 or 29 percent ingested 100 milliliters or more. In the Intian cases, only 17 percent ingested uh, 100 milliliters or more. That will become important in just a minute or two when I when their data suggests that almost everyone who ingests 100 milliliters dies. Um, so the 11 percent difference in that group may become important in a minute or two. They found that the group that had that ingested Intian had uh, fairly significantly more vomiting within the first 15 minutes, which was one of the purposes of their uh, protocol, of the uh, formulation change. So 55% of the Intian group vomited in 15 minutes, 38% of the standard group. Um, they also found that the Intian group was less likely to get lavage. 70 versus 53%, less likely to get prednisone, 17 versus 10%, and less likely to be transferred to a study hospital, 41 to 30%, uh, all implying that they uh, probably took less, um, but also appeared uh, better. So follow-up was pretty good, 73% and 63% for the standard and intion groups. That's pretty good, I would say. Um, and what they found was it was an increase in estimated three-month survival in the Intion group of 27% versus 37% uh, in the standard group. Um, <clears throat> they uh, uh, looked at that in um, groups of ingestion amount, less than 5 millimeters, 5 to 15, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and the difference, uh, overall improvement of survival was, was uh, evident in every group except for the really small ingestion, the less than five milliliter group. Um, and they do show um, survival curves for all of the, some of the interesting things on survival curves is that it seems like all of the effect was in seven days. Um, if you were going to, if there was going to be a difference, you know, almost everyone who died, died within seven days. Um, uh, just a small handful died in the next week, and then after that, um, everyone who survived the first two, three weeks uh, made it. The other thing that was very interesting on these charts is that virtually everyone who ingested 100 milliliters died. Uh, it was almost universally fatal. Um, and... Uh, the, you can see that the larger the dose you took, the steeper the survival curve. Um, so uh, the, the higher dose you took, the significantly fewer people survived. So, right. <clears throat> so they uh, calculated a potency for the Intian formulation, which is 0.54 of the standard formulation. So they're saying about half as potent as the original formulation. Um, they also looked at patients who, who die, uh, among the patients who died, there was an increase in median time to death from 0.9 days to 1.5 days. And then they looked back and they dropped the people who were possible in Tian cases, um, which, again, interesting uh, that they would look at that for this and not for anything else. Um, but the effect was more pronounced at so 1.1 days versus 2.5 days. Um, and then they looked at monthly admissions. There was some seasonal variability. They suggest that there might have been a decrease in cases over time. Um, but when they called all of those 147 hospitals, uh, they got very mixed results. Most 
hospital said they had no change in their power quad admissions. A small group said higher, a small group said lower. Uh, so probably not much of an issue there. So I think the take home here is um, if you take a lot of paraquat, you're going to die. Um, as many of the previous studies have already said, um, that uh, this formulation may have had some effect, but uh, unfortunately for uh, this study, their groups were not particularly similar, and this, the previous, the, the first group, the group that had standard formulation, um, probably took more, which probably explains most of their uh, mortality change. Uh, but um, yeah, I think we can say if there is a huge, if there is a change in mortality from this formulation change, it is not gigantic. Um, they did have patients who seemed to do a little bit better, and they did vomit earlier, which is all seems like a pretty reasonable thing. So there's a second uh, editorial. Well, there's an editorial here uh, by Nick Bateman, um, same journal, uh, and he really points out a few things. Uh, that are sort of interesting points. Um, really, to be effective clinically, a change in formulation would have to um, have to really work in patients who had a near threshold fatal dose. So you know, you really, if someone took 500 milliliters, uh, there's no formulation change you could possibly come up with that would change that person's outcome. Um, but you're really looking for people who just drank enough to kill them that this might decrease the absorption just enough to let them survive. Um, but he also felt that there were some internal inconsistencies in their approaches. Um, and, um, you know, emetics work predominantly after passive absorption from the small bowel. Um, by definition, if the emetic gets to the small bowel, so has the paraquat. Um, and so there might be some issues there. Um, the up of uh, the... Um, Uptake of paraquat from the small bowel is very rapid, so if the emetic got there, then the paraquat is already there, and the uptake is fairly quick. And the logic of, um, as he said, that he was perhaps optimistic to think that mag sulfate would prevent absorption of sufficient quantity of paraquat. Um, so goes on to say, if paraquat uses to continue, and it, it seems like it is, at least in Asia, um, then the answer is probably to make it more difficult for the product to be swallowed in the heat of an emotional crisis, not to change the formulation to decrease absorption. Uh, one target would be storage away from the house. The second target, target would be um, changing the formulation, but add the alginate um, and allow it to sell it as a gel so that you can't ingest large quantities. Um, and then uh, consider using more dilute paraquat preparations uh, of course, that's a problem because in these small agricultural agricultural communities, uh, people might be carrying these products for a very long periods of time, uh, and hence the reason why they're highly concentrated to be. Yeah, I guess uh, his editorial kind of last line take-home message is that paraquat remains a poison for which there is still little strong evidence of any effective therapies. But we keep keep trying, looking for something that's going to make a difference. You know, again the. Uh, mortality rate of 70%, 60%, even with the introduction of uh, this sort of novel approach, which I give them a lot of credit for trying to do something, um, is still extraordinarily high for people drinking more than a, 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 essentially a mouthful and a half or so is enough to get you in trouble. So um, 
I'd say on Paraquat, again, thankfully, we don't see a lot of it here in our country, which is good. Uh, we do see some diquat and some other compounds that are out there. Um, but most of them have been, you know, accidental sprayovers and things, not intentional ingestions. But I guess if we were going to develop a protocol for uh, diquat, I think we'd be aggressive with uh, volume resuscitation and um, monitoring of their cardiovascular status and trying to adequately hemoperfuse them. Uh, not hemoperfuse, adequately renal perfuse them uh, so they don't develop tubular necrosis. And I don't know, for paraquat thoughts, would we throw cyclophosphamide and dextromethazone and everything else at them, vitamin C and NAC and everything, like we did in that index case that I talked about? Um, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Since we don't see enough yeah. of it, we don't have enough data points it's to make a decision. Most of the things you're talking about have at least the NAC and the vitamin C. Um, have very little toxicity, and when used correctly, there's little downside. Until we have a randomized controlled trial that says that they do or don't work, I don't think any of us can make an intelligent uh, guess. So um, I think if it's if it's a if it's a low toxicity treatment, then it's a reasonable way to start. If when we start getting into high toxicity treatments, then I would be very hesitant. The high toxicity treatment in a universally, or you know, if you're, if, I mean, how many diseases do we see where the or ingestions where the mortality is you know, at over fifty percent, between fifty and ninety? I mean, I think we, you know, we're throwing the book at those people on our you know, calcium channel blocker. We're giving those people all sorts of experimental whatever we can find and when they're circling the drain. I think I think you throw the book at these people and if you if you've got one. That's kind of yeah. Use what you got. Well, I think it's reasonable. Uh, I imagine taking an approach kind of like uh, the Pesticide Institute in Korea, just using everything all at once and uh, and hope for the best with aggressive resuscitation is, <laughs> is, is, the, is the way to go. But um, it'd be nice in a place like that or Sri Lanka where they can see 300 patients like this a year to do some randomized trials or at least uh, maybe compare, do a multi-nation randomized trial where they're very insistent on doing it with human perfusion in one country and doing it a different way in another country, kind of comparing the two. Um, again, there'd be differences in uh, ICU care, perhaps, between the two, and time to reaching a tertiary hospital between the two, but at least be able to compare some outcome studies. Well, uh, I think that sums it up for uh, our Journal Club for today. We'll be back in a few months, and uh, we'll see you all uh, then. Thanks. <laughs>